Good evening. Tonight, I have the privilege of sharing with you from God's Word, and thank you for that scripture reading. Philippians chapter 2. It's that classic passage on selflessness and humility, and the ultimate model is the person and work of Christ Jesus. We, we heard a great reading, and I, this is what we're looking at. We're, we're looking at lives transformed. That's our prayer for you. That's the goal of this week is to inspire you, to encourage you, to challenge you to transformation, to be more like Christ. And what a prayer that we would look more like Paul, who was taking his cues from the Lord Jesus Christ, who was being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at Paul's prayer life, and I pray that we'll look like his prayer, that we'll be people abounding in love, with knowledge and discernment, that we'll be able to decide what is best and what is most excellent so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, so that we can bear lives of fruitfulness, righteous lives. I pray that we'll not just look like his prayer, but that we'll have his perspective, and that we'll have his priorities, and that we'll have his confidence, as we saw this morning. And I pray that we will have the humility that we see in Paul, that he learned from the Lord Jesus. This is a message about humility, as you've seen. I don't know if you heard about the pastor who was voted the most humble pastor in America, and his congregation gave him a medal that said to the most humble pastor in America, and then they took it away that next Sunday because he wore the medal. It's not very humble. Did you hear about the guy who wrote the book about how humble he was? And it included 12 life-size pictures of him in it. Not very humble. What do you think about humility? When I say the word humility, what comes to your mind? What emotions rise up in you? What are your thoughts? If I were to say humility in a Christian school like this, among, I think, mostly believers, if not all, we would associate positive connotations with the word, right? We know that we shouldn't toot our own horn. We practice humility, or at least we try to. But in the world outside of these doors, in the world outside the church, even as it was in Paul's day, humility was not a virtue. It was considered weakness. Humility, weakness. And many today in our culture would agree that instead, self-esteem and self-assertiveness, those are virtues. Ego and assurance of one's own greatness are traits that we want to cultivate. And perhaps that's why in so many of our schools today we have children, every child is a winner, and all children are above average. Not that I'm not about building up children. But I wonder if we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God. How about you? What do you think of when you think of humility? Now, when I was living in Chicago during my seminary years, uh, we had a neighbor behind us, and he found out I was a, a Christian, and he said, here's the whole thing with Christianity that I just can't get over. Your whole deal about humility, sacrifice, putting others before yourself, that just doesn't work in this world. This is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Christianity is just not possible. It's not relevant. It's not doable. I completely disagree. The people that I want to follow are the people who are servant leaders. And I pray that those are the kind of people you will be as you leave these grounds and you go out to serve 
the world. You'll be a servant leader who takes his cues or her cues from the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant. Let me give you a little test. As I say humility, what comes to your mind? Let me put it this way. In the most difficult challenges of life, do you conceive of acknowledging your neediness as a help or a hindrance? Do you think of your weakness as a help or a complete hindrance? Or let me put it this way. Whenever you feel insufficient in yourself, do you reflexively think that sense of insufficiency is part of the problem or part of the solution? Do you think your insufficiency is part of the problem or the road towards the solution? I can, I can think of Paul right now, his words echo in my mind, when I am weak, then I am strong, because that's when he is strongest in me. Let me say something revolutionary to you, something controversial. Hope this goes okay. You are not the center of the universe. I tried this at another school, and they didn't just throw fruit, they threw, they threw canned fruit. They were upset. No, I'm kidding. You are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. That is a revolutionary thought in our day. Now, it's not a, you get it here, and you know this. But outside of our faith, outside of God's word and a biblical worldview, that's revolutionary, and it's offensive. What do you mean I'm not the center of the universe? In the 15th century, there was an astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus who, in observing the universe, made the statement that revolutionized the world. Up to that point, everybody had believed that the Earth was the center, and the sun and the planets revolved around us. So he said, if a man is to know the truth, he must change his thinking, despite what for years we have said. Our Earth is not the center of the cosmos, but just one celestial body among many. The sun does not move around us. We move around the sun. You know, that would preach right there. And, and when he made that statement, not a lot of people believed it or appreciated it. He's wrong, they said. We're the center of the world. We're the center of the universe. It was a revolutionary statement. It was a Copernican revolution. Then that's the 15th century. In the 20th century, a well-known Swiss psychologist who studied children said another revolutionary thing. Each child must experience their own Copernican revolution. He said, they must learn that they are not the center of the world. It's not all about me and my wants. I think we all need a revolution. Because it's not just children that need to hear that. I need to hear this. It's not all about me. As Copernicus said, and I think we could apply this to ourselves spiritually, if a man is to know the truth, he must change his thinking. We're not the center of the cosmos, but just one body among many. The sun, S-O-N, does not move around us. We move around the sun. He's the blazing sun at the center of the universe. We live in the age of self, don't we? Self-realization, self-determination, self-esteem, self-help. There's a magazine called Self. It's all about myself and my choices, my options. It's all about me, not so much about the group. It's also the age of the selfie. We take constant self-portraits in various places to prove, I'm here. 
Not that a selfie is inherently evil. But let me give you a definition of a selfie. An instant visual communication of where we are, what we're doing, who we think we are, and who we think is watching us. So you got the typical selfie. You can see it, right? She's in front of the mirror, hand on the hip, duck lips. I mean, I say her, I don't know. Guys, you do that? I've never taken one of those selfies. That would be disturbing. How many selfies are taken each day? Get this, 93 million selfies are taken and posted each day worldwide. 93 million. No, that's, that's what they said. It was on the internet. It's got to be true, right? The average millennial, anybody here a millennial between 18 and 34 years old? The, the average millennial takes almost 26,000 selfies in a lifetime. 26,000 selfies in a lifetime. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just stating the facts. You say females between 16 and 25 spend five hours each week with selfies. That's not you guys. But it's the other women out there. Just the facts, that's all I'm saying. And guys, you're selfish too. You're probably more selfish than the lady. I think it's just a, a sin problem that we get from Lord Adam and Lady Eve, right? Not only can it be narcissistic, the selfie thing, but it can be dangerous. I just saw this. In 2015, there were more deaths by selfie than by shark attacks worldwide. A selfie... Sometimes you get too close to the edge for the selfie or too close to the action. The horse race, you get trampled. The car race, you get run over. Selfie week. Discovery Channel, consider it. Selfie week instead of shark. Well, Philippians 2 is the answer. It's the remedy to the narcissism and all the dangerous effects of the selfie life. If you struggle with humility, like I do, if you struggle to have a servant's heart, or if you think that humility is irrelevant, it's outdated, it's not possible, then Philippians is the book for you. In this book, humble, sacrificial, selflessness, selflessness is a virtue. Let's reflect on the humility of Paul and his associates. We're going to look at this guy named Epaphroditus, Epaph. We're going to look at Tim, Timothy, and they take their cues from Paul, who takes his cues from Christ. But ultimately, we have to reflect on the one who inspires true humility in our lives. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read the passage. If verses 1 through 4, look at your Bibles there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if those first four verses are the marks and the motives of selfless living, well then, verses 5 through 11 gives us the model of selflessness. It's a model of selflessness that we are to consider. We're to consider how Jesus Christ, who was rich for our sake, became poor. Though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. That is the gospel. And that's what's to motivate us to selfless living, to humility, the gospel. Remember what we said this morning? Always preach the gospel to your heart. The gospel is to be the fuel for the engine life. It's for the Christian life. It's to be the engine for the Christian life. Don't think that you've moved on past the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel to your heart. And that will motivate you to want to live a godly life. And so someone says, said that Christianity is about grace. And our ethics is about gratitude. 
We want to live a life of gratitude in light of what he's done. He was rich but became poor for our sake. So let's start with verses 3 through 4. A call to selflessness, to selfless humility. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, the interests of others. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of other people. That is the Copernican revolution, or better yet, the Christian revolution that we need. Notice that there are two things in those verses, verses 3 through 4, two things not to do. Two things that got Satan kicked out of the heavenly. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. I mean, Satan took the first selfie in Isaiah 14. I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. I will be like the Most High. He didn't know his place. We've never been more like the devil than when we practice those two vices. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. You're never more like the devil than when you practice selfishness. But you know what? You're never more like Jesus than when you practice lowliness of mind, humility, servanthood. This is the remedy to the disunity in this Philippian church and in our churches today. Where Judea and Sinski are fighting. There's selfish ambition. There's vain conceit. There's a lack of interest for others. Me first mentality. Warring parties fighting, bickering, fighting. Boy, this is the remedy we need. What if we look more like Jesus? So verses 3 through 4, what is selfishness? Well, when you have kids, you'll get a beautiful picture of how your sin nature has been passed on to the next generation. You'll see what selfishness looks like, and you don't even have to teach them how to be selfish. And, and you're the same way, by the way. It's not just the kids. They have a self-centered universe. And so, I mean, I don't want to throw my beautiful twins under the bus. They're as cute as can be, and on some level they're innocent, and just, I think they're pretty cute. But th this happened yesterday. We put a toy in front of them, and they never say, no, 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 sissy, you first. You first, Lizzie. No, you, Gracie. It's usually mine, and someone comes and tells us, no, I had it first. But that's not just little kids. I do that, too, different way, but I do it, too. I pout when I don't get my way, when I've got to put someone else first. I get frustrated. I get angry. I complain. You ever drive and get impatient with the other drivers? Usually, it's because you're selfish. Sometimes you just have bad drivers. Welcome to the view. Selfishness is usually behind my impatience with other people. You know, I think it, it is accurate on some level that behind all sin is selfishness. Certainly behind all sin is pride. But I think, think with me through this, behind all uh, sin is selfishness. Every time I sin, I'm asserting myself against God. Not your way, my way. I'm not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm pushing him off. And every time I sin against you, I'm asserting myself against you. Me first, not you. At some level, I think for the most part, that's an accurate statement. Behind all sin is selfishness. And it's not just kids. You know, I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. And I had another person to think about. 
And then with each child, and I have seven, so you realize how selfish I'm finding myself to be. With every new child, I realize that's just less time for me to do what I want to do. I'm selfish. I struggle with it daily. I battle it daily. Every time I sin, I'm asserting myself against God and other people. Not your way, my way. This is the great dilemma. What's the solution? What's the remedy? How can a person live for others? The right motives. How can we have the motivation to humble ourselves and serve others with a joyful heart? Well, part of the remedy for fighting against the way of self-aggrandizement and pride is to fix your eyes, Philippians 2, fix your eyes on the ultimate model of humility. Look at the selfless love of Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor. Look at Christ constantly. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself. Have you done that? Here in in our Philippians 2 passage, verses 6 through 11, that great hymn, that great Christological gem right there, you have a model and a motivation for humbling yourself before God and other people. Verse 5. He points them to the model of Christ, humility, to encourage them to put others first. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. And to that purpose, he says, look on Christ and consider verses 6 through 11. In this section, we see how God reached out to humanity. We gaze on the ultimate expression of selfless, no strings attached, sacrificial love. Someone once said, you can tell the depths of a well by how much rope you lower down. In this section, this section is about God lowering the rope, showing the depth of the hole of our sin and depravity and how far God has actually stooped down to rescue us. You see how long his saving arm is. You see in this passage God stooping, condescending to meet us in our need. Great old preacher. If you ever find a book by him, read it. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he once wrote, Love that reaches up is adoration and worship. Love that reaches out is affection, but love that stoops down is grace. Isn't that good? Love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches out is affection, but the love that stoops down is is grace. It's when you, you get a gift you don't deserve. It's, it's when the undeserving sinner gets a gift they don't deserve from an unobligated giver. And that would be Jesus stooping down to meet us in our need. This passage, in other words, is all about grace. Grace comes screaming out of these verses here. In this passage, you see God stooping. In other words, as one writer said, no one has ever come so low because no one's ever come from so high. No one's ever come from so high and stooped so low. God became man without sin to be a man so that he could die for us. We take that for granted. That's mind-boggling. That's the incarnation. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. See, in religion, it's always man ascending to God. Christianity it's God ascending to us. It's grace. It's pure grace. 
It's not reciprocal. I'm going to come and love you because you're so lovely. No. We have blemishes and knobby knees and bad breath, and we are not lovely. But he comes and he meets us where we're at. It's grace. Grace is amazing. I think we need to put amazing back in grace. We need to be awed by that no-strings-attached love. It's the kind of thing that makes you want to dance in the streets and say, I can't believe you love me. It's scandalous. It's surprising. Let's focus first on this grace as we look at Christ's preeminence. So look first at Christ's glory in verse 6. Before we look at his stooping and his condescension, his coming down to us, look at where he comes from. No one's ever come so low because no one's ever come from so high. Look at his glory in verse 6. The preeminence of Christ. This is who you know as Savior. The first view of Jesus that inspired us to servanthood is this. His pre-incarnate state. Here he is portrayed as foremost. Who, being in very nature of God, in very nature of God, he who, being in the very form of God, didn't consider that equality of God as something to use for his own advantage. Paul says that, in other words, before the incarnation, before the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature, Jesus was in the very nature of God and was God's equal, and he still is. But he's added another nature, a human nature. He was in nature or in the form of God. The idea behind that language is that Jesus shared and shares the essential nature of God the Father. He possessed the very same attributes as the Father. The cults are wrong. Jesus is God. He deserves our worship and our homage. He is Lord of all lords. These words, he existed in the very nature of God, mean that they mean that he is God. If God is omniscient, all-knowing, so is Jesus. Is God all-powerful? So is Jesus. Is God the creator? So is Jesus. Nothing that's been made was made apart from you, John 1.3. Is God a redeemer? Is God truth? Is God the way? Is God life? Is God the past, present, and the future? Is he unchanging? So is Jesus. He's not just a good moral teacher. He won't let us go there. And so here, Paul's words, they soar to the same height as John 1. You know John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. And we know because of the context, the Word became flesh. It's Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. In the beginning was the Word, Son, the perfect communication from God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then jump down to verse 3. And all things were made through him. And nothing that was made was made apart from him. You can't say that about any creature. There we have our great God and Savior. And that's actually the language Paul uses in passing almost in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. As he speaks of Jesus, he says, We await the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We await the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself. Again, he claimed God's eternity and God's very name in John's Gospel. John 8, you remember this? He says, before Abraham was even born, I am self-existent. I'm eternal. No one made me. I don't have a birthday. I'm God. I am. I'm Yahweh. This is the one who is confessed as Lord in verse 11. 
This is the one before whom every tongue will confess his lordship. Every knee, every knee will bow. doesn't matter who you are on planet Earth. Everyone who's ever existed will one day bow their knee before Jesus Christ. That's not very politically correct, but it's true. Why? Why universal homage and worship? Because he's the universal Lord of all. He's not some local deity. He's the God of the universe. He deserves your worship and mine. That's what makes this so shocking, that he would condescend. That he would condescend and stoop to us? This is just breathtaking. It really is. So you've seen his preeminence. Now, in verses 7 through 8, look at his humility. May this inspire you. May the gospel inspire you to live a life like this. The second view of Jesus is his humility, his stooping. One writer said, Christ had been above all men, above all angels, and yet he became lower than both in love for men and in obedience, in obedience to his heavenly Father. He took on flesh. He didn't consider that equality of God as something used to his own advantage, but instead he made himself low. He humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross. One great commentator said, how would the king of glory enter this world to rescue us? How would he humble himself? How would he enter in? Would he appear in a blaze of light, bursting into the night of the Palestinian countryside, dazzling all who beheld him? Perhaps he would appear as a mighty general marching into pagan Rome as Caesar did when he crossed the Rubicon. Perhaps he would come as the wisest of Greek philosophers, putting the wisdom of Plato and Socrates to shame by a supernatural display of intellect. But what is this? There is no display of glory, no pomp, no circumstance, no marching, no marching to the feet of the heavenly legions. Instead, Christ lays aside his robes, the glory which he had from eternity, he steps down from his heavenly throne and he becomes a baby in the arms of a mother in a far eastern colony of the Roman Empire. At the display of divine condescension, the angels are amazed and they burst into such a crescendo of song that even the shepherds hear them on the hills of Bethlehem. In verses 7 through 8, we see his humility, the selflessness of Christ. Although he was God, he didn't consider that equality with God as something used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a bondservant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He made himself nothing of, of low reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. Did he empty himself of his divine attributes, as some have said? Cults, false teachers. Did he empty himself of his divinity, of his divine nature? No. He never ceased to be God. He never has. You, you can't be essentially God and then cease to be God. Impossible. He always was, always is, and always will be of the very same nature as the Father. So this is metaphorical language. He emptied himself. And we know it's metaphorical language because... It says he emptied himself by taking something on. He made himself low. How? By taking on the form of a servant, a bond servant. 
being made in human likeness, indicating that he was like us in every way except without sin. And the king became a bondservant. He took up the towel. You remember when he washes his disciples' feet? I mean, that's extraordinary. Have you ever washed someone's feet? I used to take my youth group on missions trips to Arizona, go to the Navajo Reservation, manual mission. And one of the nights we, we wanted to teach our students about servant leadership. We'd been serving uh, our dear friends on the reservation that day with practical helps. And then that night we surprised the students. We as youth leaders had them sit down and they had been outside all day sweating hot, sticky, stinky feet, and we removed their shoes, and we washed those feet, and almost every one of them wept. It's humbling to have someone wash your feet. To think that he washed their feet, to think that he didn't just wash our feet, he died for us. How can we say, don't you know who I am? I'm not going to serve. How can we do that when he has done that? How can we not be servants when he has stooped down the king of the universe? And so Paul gives a little commentary on it in that 2 Corinthians 8 passage. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect record in our spiritual bank account. He doesn't see our imperfect record filled with selfishness. His humility, his selfless sacrifice took him all the way to the depths. To death, even death on the cross. You know, there is no story like the gospel story. There's no story like this that's more beautiful and life-changing and transforming than this, that the king would serve sinners. I don't know if you've heard about the world's poorest president. You know, it's a common grumble and complaint that politicians' lifestyles are more, they're very far removed from those of the people they represent. Not so in Uruguay, at least back in 2010 through 2015, there was a president. And BBC, you could look it up, BBC did this report. It's called Meet the World's Poorest President. He lives in a ramshackle farmhouse. He gives away almost all of his presidential pay. Laundry is strung outside his house. Water comes from a well in the yard, overgrown with weeds, only two police officers are his secret service, plus a dog named Manuela who has only three legs. They keep watch over the president. This is the resident of the president of Uruguay. His name is Jose Mujica, whose lifestyle clearly differs sharply from that of most world leaders. President Jose has shunned the luxurious houses that they offer him, the state offers him, and other leaders of the country. He opts to stay in his wife's little farmhouse off a dirt road outside the capital. The president and his wife work the land themselves. They grow flowers and sell them. This austere lifestyle and the fact that he donates 90% of his monthly salary, equivalent to about $12,000, 
he donates 90% of that to charity and to his people. This has led him to be labeled the world's poorest president. His annual personal wealth declaration is $1,800. The value of his 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. He lives among the people. He relates to the people. He condescends to the people. He proves his solidarity with his people. He's a servant leader, and because of this, he's also their favorite president. He's the most beloved president. Doesn't that inspire love? I want to follow someone like that. What if you were a leader like that? It's such a beautiful story. It's a life-changing story of God coming down into our mess, showing his solidarity. There's nothing like it in the world. There's no other religion that answers the problem of evil like our faith. There are times in the past where I've had to do some counseling or just meet people's needs who are struggling with the loss of a loved one. And the question is, why? Why did God let that happen? Why did God let that happen to my dad? Why did God allow that mother, 40 years old, with children at home, to die suddenly? Why would God let this happen? And you know, God has a reason. He's sovereign. He has a purpose in it all. He works all things together for his glory and our good. But sometimes I just have to say, you know, I, I don't know why. God knows I don't know the reason. But you know, the one thing I can tell them is, we have a God who's been here with us in the mess. See, that's the incarnation. That's the story of Christmas. We can't always say the why, but we can tell people the who. We have a God who's been here, who's literally taken on our humanity. He's walked in our shoes. He's lived in our skin without our sin nature. He's been here. You can't say to him, you don't know what it's like to face injustice. He faced the greatest injustice. You can't say to God, God, you don't know what it's like to lose a child. He gave his son. Talk about solidarity. Coming into the mess to be with his people. He'll make all things right one day, but in the meantime, what a joy to know. He understands he's a sympathetic high priest. You know, there's another amazing story that points us back to this great story we're fleshing out. It's a story of a, a man named Damien. He was a, a preacher, a missionary. He became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Kalawao, a village in Hawaii that had been quarantined to serve a, leper, a leper's colony. For 16 years, he lived in the midst of these lepers. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced their bodies that no one else would ever touch. Some of these people had never been touched since the disease took over. He preached to their hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools. He organized bands on the islands, choirs. He built them homes so they would have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that they, when they died, would be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said that Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place to die. Because Brother Damien offered hope. Brother Damien was not careful about keeping his distance from these people. 
He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers into the same bowls. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after abandoning their sores. He got close. He got in the mess. For this, the people loved him. Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with these words. We lepers. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived, now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. One day God, he came to earth, and he began his message, we lepers. I'm not saying Jesus was a leper. I'm not saying he was a sinner. But I'm certainly saying he became one of us. He took on our humanity. He got into our mess so he could represent us and die for us and have us forever. You see God stooping? Philippians 2, here we have the gospel, the message of grace. Isn't that the engine that makes you want to be a servant now? It's not a bunch of rules. We don't just give you advice so you'll change. Moralism doesn't work. Behavior modification doesn't work. We preach the gospel here to Emmaus, and we will trust God to use the message of the gospel to transform your lives. Preach the gospel to yourself. Never stop preaching it to yourself. Look at what God has done for us. How can I stand back and not be a servant and be humble and put others first? A life-changing story. It's our story. It's the greatest story I've ever heard. Again, religion is man climbing his way to God. Christianity is grace. God descending to meet us in our wretchedness. And so there's the model we need. That's what we need to see tonight. It's not just a model, it's a motivation. But notice this too as we close. Look at verses 19 of chapter 2 to verse 30. We sometimes meet these two characters and we forget about them. A guy named Epaphroditus and a guy named Timothy. And don't forget about Paul. You want to see what servanthood looks like when the rubber meets the road in real flesh and blood and people like us? Well, first of all, I just want you to notice... You remember how chapter 1, verse 1 begins? Paul introduces himself and Timothy. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. He has complete authority to speak to the churches. But he says, I'm a servant. And he starts to prepare us for the rest of the letter. Where he's going to call us to servanthood, humility. And that will be the remedy for their fighting. And then there's this guy named Tim. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I'm sending him to you so he can bring word back to me about how you're doing. I have no one else like Timothy who, listen, will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son to his spiritual father, me, Paul, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send them as soon as I can to see how things are going with you. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon as well. I have no one else like Timothy. He'll look out for your interests. He'll have genuine concerns for your welfare. But most people are just focused on themselves. What a light you'll be if you are a servant and focused on others. You ever meet people that just talk about themselves all the time? Everything you say to them becomes about them. How refreshing it is when you meet people who are genuinely concerned about, like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Tell me about yourself. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I pray for you? That's refreshing. And look at verse 25. Here's another guy who takes his cues from Paul, who takes his cues from the Lord Jesus, who descended for us. Verse 25. Understand the backstory. Paul's in prison. The Philippians as a whole cannot go to his prison and meet his need in Rome. So they send Epaphroditus, a messenger, to carry out the work, to come meet Paul's practical needs in, in prison. But, verse 25, I, I think it is necessary now to send back to Epaphroditus, because Epaphroditus comes, serves Paul, but gets sick, almost dies. So Paul's worried that the Philippians are going to be sick to their stomachs, worried about Epaphroditus. Verse 25 again, I think it is necessary to send back to Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, verse 27, and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may be full of less anxiety. Listen to this, though. Verse 29. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Honor men like this because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for your help that you yourselves could not give him. He gave himself to meet my needs. He was focused on my welfare, not his own. He humbled himself. He sacrificed. Honor men like that. Do you want God to smile on your life? Be a servant. And so in verse 9 through 11, you see Christ's exaltation. It says, therefore, because Christ humbled himself, therefore God exalted him and gave him a name above all other names. You will be someone who's honored. God will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, when you become a faithful servant. When you take your cues from the Lord Jesus. When you realize, you know who's great in the kingdom of God? The servant. And that's what Jesus teaches us in Mark 10. He says, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be a slave to all. And so there it is. There's your motivation. Let's take our cues from the gospel, from the sacrifice of Christ, his humility. First, it starts with, if you're going to see a change, you have to admit that you are selfish. You have to admit your problem, you're sick. We all are selfish. Then you have to confess to God. Humble yourself before God. That's what Peter says. Humble yourself there under the mighty hand of God. Be clothed with humility. Admit your problem, confess it to God, and then, this is what we talked about this week, final step, 
is to daily fellowship with Jesus. He is the vine, you're the branches. Good luck being a selfless person in your own strength. Good luck with marriage. Good luck. It's going to be hard. If you think you can be selfless without Christ's help, if you think you can disconnect from Jesus and be patient, kind, full of love, self-control, apart from him, you can't consistently do it. But if you abide in him, he can reproduce his character in your life. And you'll have great success in your marriage, in your friendships, in your relationships here, with teachers and students. So admit your sin, confess to God, humble yourself before him, and then ask Jesus when you wake up every morning, Lord, help me to be like you today. Help me be selfless. I'm connecting you. I need your help. I can't do this. I'm a selfish person. Lord, let your humility shine through me today. And great things can happen. Father, we're so thankful for your word, for your revelation, for your example, your model. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and humbled yourself for us, that you even died for us. May we see that grace and now be inspired to share that same service towards others. Help us to be known as servants here. For your namesake we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.